This week on the front line of the battle to save RAF Lossiemouth. It will ruin the community if they close RAF Lossiemouth. It will have a devastating effect on Lossie and Murray and Highland. If they go, I mean, I think Lossie will be like a ghost town. George W. Bush unrepentant about waterboarding suspected terrorists. Using those techniques save lives. My job was to protect America and I did. BFBS. Headlines. Across Britain, millions of people have observed two-minute silence on Armistice Day. In Trafalgar Square, traffic was halted to allow people to pause in honour of the country's war dead. Ministers say a shake-up of the benefits system will mean work always pays. The Work and Pensions Secretary, Ian Duncan-Smith, has described the current setup as a doorway to hopelessness and despair. Iraq's political parties have finally reached agreement on how to form a government eight months after elections, which failed to produce a clear winner. Under the power-sharing deal, Nouri al-Maliki will remain the country's prime minister. One of the country's oldest military charities says there are too many groups offering help to ex-service personnel. Veterans Aid says it's diluted the overall provision of support. And the police ministers admitted there weren't enough officers at yesterday's student demo in central London. 50 people were arrested after violence among the crowds who smashed windows at Conservative Party headquarters. Military and civilian communities affected by the Strategic Defence and Security Review have had a few weeks now to absorb the decisions made by ministers. But for some, the fight back's only just starting. At the weekend, 6,000 people joined a rally in Lossiemouth in support of the town's RAF base. It's feared it could be closed alongside nearby RAF Kinloss as part of the cuts. It will ruin the community if they close RAF Lossiemouth. It's not just people who work here, it's their families, their children, their partners... They work in the community as well, and it will have a devastating effect on Lossie and Murray and Highland as well. Obviously, the base, both bases, for of Lossie and uh, Kinloss bring a lot of money into, the, into Murray. So, I mean, if they go, I mean, I think Lossie will be like a ghost town. Campaigners fear Lossiemouth could lose its tornado fleet to RAF Marham in Norfolk, but the Armed Forces Minister Nick Harvey has told MPs a final decision on where to base the tornadoes is many months away. It's unlikely that any decisions on tornado basing will be taken before next spring at the earliest, but all relevant costs, including those arising from any necessary relocations, will be given full consideration. Well, uh, Christopher Lee, our uh, defence analyst, is with us uh, in the studio today. Christopher, RAF Lossiemouth, what are the strategic arguments for keeping it? I don't think there are any strategic arguments for keeping it unless you're actually flying... um, a lot of aircraft from them. It's far more of a strategic argument, argument actually, for, ke- for keeping uh, a Kinloss, which is going to close, and that's because you could fly the Nimrod from there. Well, we're going to get rid of the Nimrods, and that is a, is a bewildering decision. The other thing is a wonderful microclimate up there on, the, uh, on that Murray Firth. I've flown from there. You can fly, and you can come back on there, and that's very important. But it is jobs eventually, and it's not just the only airbase that could close in Scotland. 
So, so ultimately, you think this campaign will be unsuccessful? It'll be unsuccessful, excepting that it's turning people's minds to it. Uh, in Scotland, you don't have to do it because it includes the Navy at Rosyth, uh, shipbuilding, uh, and, and Scotland is a, probably loses or gains more out of the Strategic Defence and Security Review uh, than any other part of the United Kingdom. But whether it'll change the minister's minds, that's not particularly clear. Nick Harvey says, oh, well, we have to take the decision much later. But what about Lucas? What about the, uh, the operational conversion unit for the time? Typhoons. That's also got to be considered. Well, Scotland's First Minister, Alex Salmond, uh, is uh, on the line now. Thank you very much for joining us, Mr Salmond. We, we already know Kinloss will close. How worried are you about Lossy Mouth? Well, obviously, it's a matter of huge concern because Murray, the Murray economy in the northeast of Scotland, is the most Air Force dependent in the, in the country. I mean, between Kinloss and Lossy Mouth, uh, one quarter, one quarter of the, the jobs and the investment in the local economy is tied up in these two RAF bases. And that would be, if Lossie were to close, it would be the biggest single economic blow in Scotland since the closure of Ravenscraig in the, in the 1990s. So obviously there's huge concern. The Defence Secretary suggested the army could use Lossie Mouth instead. How viable is that, do you think? Well, he hasn't said that they could use Lossie. He said that the army moving into a base might be uh, uh, an option. I mean, in terms of, I mean, obviously having the army based in Scotland would be an advantage, and I'm sure the, the Scots regiments would be very much in, in favour of that. But in economic terms, as we know, basing a battalion, for example, uh, has about a quarter of the economic effect of one Air Force base, never mind two Air Force bases. Plus the fact the logistics of returning from Germany are generally meant to be around four or five years. Uh, so it's not really an option in economic terms. But, of course, we're arguing the case for, for Lossie not just in economic terms, but in strategic terms. Uh, I mean, the Lossie was evaluated by the RAF uh, in a, a judgment which encompassed some eight other possible Air Force bases as the best place for the, uh, the new fighter, the, the tornado replacement. And if the RAF have judged Lossie to be the best base, then who are the MOD not to look to the future and say, well, the best strategic base for the future fighters uh, should be retained in RAF service? So I think there's a very strong strategic case uh, and defence case for Lossie Mouth, as well as an economic and social case. Uh, Liam Fox talking in Oslo yesterday about greater ties with, with northern European countries, maybe uh, Norway sharing Lossie Mouth in terms of the Joint Strike Fighter uh, base. Do you think that's an option? Well, it's quite interesting. You know, the Liam Fox in Norway talking about joint cooperation, and there is a question mark over the two Air Force bases closest to Norway. <laughs> it does seem a bit of a, a contradiction. And also, it kind of sobers the, the, the thoughts to remember that the Norwegians have six Air Force bases. Six. Uh, if uh, Lossi and Kinloss were to close, Scotland would have one. In fact, Norway would have three times the air capacity of Scotland <laughs> under that uh, scenario. So, it does give a, a kind of comparative judgment about the extent of the withdrawal of the defence footprint from Scotland under certain proposals. And that's why we're going to fight extremely hard to keep Lossie open and the huge demonstration, the 7,000 people who demonstrated in you know, Lossie Mouth, which is a small town. And remember, of course, that serving personnel, as everybody listening to this will be well aware, were not allowed to be part of that demonstration. So that was 7,000 members of the community demonstrating in support of the retention of the Lossy base. So there's a real mobilisation going on uh, to make sure that that closure does not happen. OK, Alex Salmon, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. Great pleasure.
Well, the government's uh, under attack on all sides on its uh, defence policy at the moment. Former senior military figures wrote to The Times this week demanding ministers rethink the plan to scrap the Ark Royal and the Harrier fleet. Admiral Lord West, a security minister in the last Labour government, is one of the signatories, worried the decision to leave the Falkland Islands vulnerable to attack by Argentina. I think that it is debatable to be absolutely sure or even to be 90% sure that such a thing couldn't happen. And my point, and this is the important point, because it applies all around the world, the only way to get fixed-wing air covering our troops and fighting for the UK is to have them on aircraft carriers. You can't, the tornado basically can't get to any of these places, and that's the really crucial and key point. Well, Christopher, ministers say their decision followed advice from current military leaders as opposed to past, uh, and they're not very likely to back down, are they? No, they're not going to back down, but, uh, you know, I, I, wouldn't, uh, uh, I wouldn't say that uh, people like uh, Aber Lord West are that far old and bold. I mean, he was security minister. He does know what he's talking about. He's talking to people all the time. They're talking to him. I think one of the difficulties of that whole thing about the Times and people like General Sir Ju- uh, Admiral Sir Julian Oswald, uh, Major General uh, Julian Thompson, etc., putting their names to it, they picked on the Falklands. It is, as a very good friend of mine in the MOD so eloquently put it, that was a right bum I- uh, argument Quite frankly, if you look at why you want Ark Royal, why you want Harriers, why you want uh, aircraft anyway on, 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 on aircraft carriers, he's got it right there. You can put an aircraft on the top of a ship and you can do what you want to do and you don't have to put it on, on, on the land. A friend of mine has flown 140 uh, sorties in Harriers in Afghanistan. Now tell me, Minister, why you're telling me that uh, the, we don't need the Harriers in Afghanistan. Still to come, has the poppy appeal gone to showbiz? Also, a radical money-saving suggestion. Scrap the entire military. What are we protecting the nation against? You've got to have a reason. I'm being protected against attack. Uh, Nobody is even remotely threatening to attack me. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Were British lives saved by the use of a technique widely considered to be torture? George W. Bush says intelligence obtained by waterboarding terror suspects stopped attacks on London. In his memoirs published in the US this week, the former president insists he was right to approve the use of harsh interrogation techniques. But the head of MI6 has called torture illegal and abhorrent. Did it really play a crucial role in preventing attacks on the UK? Paul Osborne reports. George W. Bush has kept a low profile in the two years since he left the White House. But with a book to promote, he's hit the interview circuit and faced some tough questions about Afghanistan, Hurricane Katrina and, of course, Iraq. He says the American troops who abused Iraqi detainees shamed the U.S. military. But on the use of waterboarding, he has a different story. Are the techniques legal? And uh, a legal team says, yes, they are. And I said, use them. Why is waterboarding legal, in your opinion? Because the lawyer said it was legal. I will tell you this, uh, using those techniques saved lives. My job was to protect America, and I did. According to the former president, the information obtained through waterboarding prevented terror attacks on Heathrow Airport and Canary Wharf. But that's news to former Labour MP Kim Howells, who used to chair Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee which oversees the work of the security agencies. I don't think there's any, uh, any doubt that there were real plots and that there are continuing plots now. Um, where I doubt 
uh, what President Bush has said is that this, what we regard as torture, waterboarding, uh, actually produced information which... Uh, which was instrumental in preventing those plots coming to fruition and murdering people. So did waterboarding save British lives and the lives of others around the world? That's not the point, according to Tom Porteous, the UK Director of Human Rights Watch. Waterboarding most certainly is torture. Uh, the victim is strapped down to a board, is uh, put on his back, and uh, a wet cloth is placed over his mouth and water is poured over his face. Uh, it feels like drowning because it is drowning. It's the deliberate infliction of pain and suffering in order to uh, obtain information. It is torture. There's no two ways about it. And instead of trying to justify it, uh, George Bush should be repudiating it. Conservative MP David Davis is a former Shadow Home Secretary and unimpressed by the President's words. He talks about being mortified about what he termed false intelligence that led to the war in Iraq. You know where that false intelligence came from? A large part of it, it came from the torture of Mr Al Libby uh, and then the illegal rendition thereafter. And that's the problem with torture. People under torture tell you what you want to hear and apart from being immoral, apart from destroying our standing in the world, apart from undermining the, the way of life we're trying to defend, it actually doesn't Deliver. Mr Bush says that prior to ordering a troop surge, he thought America was facing defeat in Iraq, but he never thought of using his memoirs to say sorry. Apologizing would basically say the decision was a wrong decision, and I, I, I don't believe it was a wrong decision. On Afghanistan, he admits the US was ill-equipped for nation-building, but insists true democracies take time to develop. And as for the final analysis of his eight years in the White House... George W. Bush says that is a judgment for other people. I hope I'm judged a success. I'm comfortable knowing that I gave it my all, that I love America, and that uh, uh, and I know it's an honour to serve. George W. Bush ending Paul Osborne's report there. Well, earlier I spoke to Major General Tim Cross, who was the most senior British officer responsible for post-war planning in Iraq after the invasion in 2003. I started by asking him about George W. Bush's claim that waterboarding saved British lives. The first point is I don't know whether he's right because, of course, I don't know the circumstances or, or the environment within which that was happening. I don't think the ends justify the means, though, and that's probably the more important question of the two. I think there's always a danger that you assume you've got information in one way that you'd never have got any other way, but I've never been convinced that torture works. One of the issues, of course, is, is waterboarding torture, and I, and I know that President Bush says that he took legal advice on that. My own view is that it is at the torture end of the spectrum rather than at the other end of the spectrum. There's a moral issue here as well as a legal issue. So I don't know whether they got the information that saved lives, the reality of that, uh, but I do think that the, the ends do not justify the means, and I, I'm not actually uh, in favour of waterboarding. In terms of, of British security, though, does it matter where we get the information from? We have to act on it, don't we? Well, I think, there's, I think it does matter. Um, I think the issue is if you, are, if you ha are told information, clear intelligence that something is going to happen then I think common sense prevails and says, well, you wouldn't refuse to act on that information. But I think in the way that we deal with our allies and our partners and so forth, we are increasingly making it clear to them that we do not approve of torture and we do not want to uh, you know, work with people who use torture. One of the questions, of course, is what is torture? And I think that's not an unimportant question because if you are interrogating somebody who has been you know, lawfully arrested and all the rest of it and you and you genuinely think that there is a that there's a chance that this man can give you or lady can give you information 
then um, you know, interrogating somebody, questioning somebody, and the language is important here, um, it clearly has to be done. So where's the balance between making somebody feel uncomfortable, uh, making somebody feel discomforted, uh, causing a certain amount of irritation and concern? Where does that spectrum suddenly cross a point on it that says, we've now crossed into a line here which is torture? Uh, and that's very difficult to pin down, actually, because for some people, you know, obviously they can deal with things better than other people. So this is not an easy debate, but the bottom, you know, the, the bold question is, is torture a good thing? My answer to that is very clearly no. And we, the Brits, quite rightly, should not be engaged with it. In terms of President Bush, he says it's for, for others to judge his presidency and how it's viewed in years uh, to come. You were in Iraq in the months after the invasion. How do you judge him and his presidency? Well, I think to be fair to him, and I think to be fair to Blair, they now recognize that they made some fundamentally poor choices. And um, I think my, my biggest criticism has always been the, the, the post-war planning for Iraq. And I think that people allowed themselves to be locked in a paradigm that said everything would be fine. And I think that Bush uh, you know, did fall at that fence. I don't think there's any doubt about that in my mind at all. Uh, hit the broader aspects of his presidency, you know, we can have a longer debate about. I have said again publicly many times, I have never had a problem with having got rid of Saddam Hussein. I've watched the mass graves being dug up. I've seen the consequences of, of his regime. Um, but there's no doubt at all the post-war planning did not go well. And I think he bears, ultimately as the president, he bears responsibility for that. Major General uh, Tim Cross there. Christopher, on the subject of torture, is it simply one of those things that, that happens, it goes on, and we should simply turn a blind eye to? Three things. One is that it's who tortures or how a prisoner's handled. Uh, one of the biggest problems that the British have had and the Americans have had, for example, in Iraq, was prisoner handling and who therefore gets the prisoner. Interrogation or questioning, as it's politely called, um, is a difficult one because you have your time-conscious about you interrogate somebody to say, what's going to happen in the next couple of hours if you just picked them up? The second thing is, is the long and the strategic rule. You bung them off to, uh, to Cuba if that's what you're doing. But don't forget, anybody who's done, been a p- capture-prone troop, has gone off to Pentrylus or whatever to do the resistance to interrogation training. And what we, what they are taught uh, originally was how the other side would torture you, and so it was resistance to interrogation training. What the Americans have done is to say, hey, this is quite good, we'll do that, and that's where there's the huge discrepancy that you get the head of uh, MI6 the other day, uh, Soros, was saying, we mustn't do torture, because if you take somebody to court, and he says, I've been tortured, then the court case is going to fall down. This is SITREP on BFBS. MPs have been asking questions this week about Britain's mission in Afghanistan. Our former special envoy to the country, Sir Sherrod Cooper-Coles, has warned a sudden withdrawal could lead to chaos, undoing everything that's been achieved so far. If we were to leave precipitately, um, there would be chaos. There would be civil war and there would be a battle across the south between the Taliban uh, and the narco-mafia broadly defined. Uh, We've not really succeeded in building a causeway, a durable causeway of good governments uh, between the narco-mafia on the one hand and the Taliban on the other. And for many southern Afghans, uh, what they want to know is who's going to be in charge of their village or their valley five months or five years from now, and they'll back the women. And for many of them, the Taliban are harsher but fairer than a predatory 
narco-mafia stroke Afghan government. Well, Christopher, the Defence Select Committee has been hearing more evidence on Afghanistan this week. You were at Westminster for the hearings. What were MPs told? Oh, basically, that when Prime Minister Cameron says, well, OK, 2015, we're going to be starting a withdrawal, what they're now telling them is, well, look, we're not all going, are we? It's the so-called combat troops, the heavy combat troops, they're the ones that will be going, and so going to be there for some time to go. But when people listen to Sherrod Cooper Coles, listen to him very carefully, he's the one guy that got it right about Iraq. He is the one guy that is consistently getting uh, uh, it right about Afghanistan. Somebody ought to download, and you can download, his evidence to the Foreign Affairs Committee. Listen to it very carefully. And if I were the Chief of the Defence Staff, I would get a transcript of what he said. The threat to RAF Lossiemouth is just one of the effects of last month's defence review, but one man suggested, if anything, ministers didn't go far enough. Columnist Simon Jenkins has suggested getting rid of the military entirely. In an article in The Guardian, he said, we just do not need an army, navy or air force, so should stop paying £45 billion a year for them. One of the points I'm trying to make is that anybody who requires public expenditure um, of a very considerable amount at the moment needs to justify it. And the arguments used to justify most defence expenditure at the moment are, are extremely thin. OK, flesh that out for us. What arguments would you, would you put against any of the military altogether? Well, I mean, there's a list of threats that were given um, to us uh, two or three weeks ago by the MOD um, as, as requiring some sort of defensive action by us, almost all of which did not require military expenditure. Most of them are to do with crime and drugs and um, cyber um, interference and so on. Um, the, the actual defence threats were limited to, to a, a, a sort of an invasion by a foreign power um, and a, uh, an, a nuclear attack. And both of these seem to me to be so far-fetched as to be really just, just way over the horizon. And at that point, one starts to ask, well, um, what, is it all, what are we spending our, the money on? Do we really need to spend money on these things? And most seriously, I think, is that when you're spending money on defence and you have a defence capability... The, in, the inducement to use it where it might not have been a good idea to use it is overwhelming, and I would list Iraq and Afghanistan in that case. You advised Labour's Defence Review in 1997, but in your discussions you weren't really allowed near the really expensive parts of the budget, were you? They were the nuclear deterrent, uh, they were the, the, the joint strike fighter, and they were aircraft carriers. It was abundantly clear this had nothing to do with defence at all. It was entirely political, uh, and we were banned from discussing these very expensive items, which I think have completely distorted uh, the, the defence equipment procurement for almost 20 years now. We're not allowed to discuss them because they weren't, they weren't anything to do with defence. They were just political gestures. In the article, you say that you're not a pacifist. You accept the need to protect the nation. How do you do that, though, without the armed forces? Well, I, I protect the nation against what? I repeat, I just repeat, what are we protecting the nation against? You've got to have a reason. When I spend money on the police force, I know what I'm protect, being protected against. I'm being protected against crime. Um, in the case of, of, of national defence, I'm being protected against attack. Uh, nobody is even remotely threatening to attack me. Uh, the best they can do is, 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 is terrorism, and terrorism is, is, not, is not what I call a state attack. It's a crime. Surely, though, it's about that deterrent. That threat isn't there because we have the armed forces. Uh, which threat? The potential threat of attack, of terrorism, of invasion. Well, terrorism isn't deterred by anything. I mean, is the ter uh, terrorism deterred by ha having a nuclear weapon? It's a ridiculous argument. Um, the Argentinians weren't deterred from attacking the Falklands by having a nuclear weapon. The nuclear deterrent is, 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 is completely defunct as a concept now. Um, as for 
being deterred against attack, I have to repeat, against what? I mean, I want to be deterred against someone um, criminally attacking my home. Yes, I can understand that. But, but an attack from, what, the Germans or the French? I mean, who are we talking about? This is completely crazy talk. OK, Christopher, make of that what you will. OK, well, I mean, Simon's... I always listen to what he says, or listen to what he writes. Um, attack the United Kingdom? Nonsense, actually, because an attack on the United Kingdom is an attack on these shores. It's an attack on, on, on ideals... Uh, resources, everything else throughout the world. That's the, fir- that's the first thing. I would tell you, though, there is this idea of getting rid of everybody. Uh, it's, it's, it's got a ni- nice side to it. I, used to, I was writing a play for um, BBC with Fiona Shaw and Martin Jarvis, and we set up this idea that uh, Martin Jarvis goes in to see the assistant undersecretary, uh, Fiona Shaw, and says, um, why don't we get rid of all the military from the Ministry of Defence, send them back to their units, solve, solve everything, we solve uh, uh, the, the difficult decisions that they actually foul up by saying, oh, we want something else bolted onto our aircraft carriers, thus doubling the, the expense of it. We also solved the recruiting problem because they're all back doing their jobs. And everybody fell about laughing. And there was a minister at the uh, MOD uh, rang me about a week later. So I've been listening to this. He said, you would like to expand on it, would you? <laughs> it's in the Defence Review. Millions of people in Britain and around the world marked two minutes silence earlier on Armistice Day. On Sunday, the Queen and and the Prime Minister will lead commemorations at the Cenotaph. But there's been criticism of the way this year's poppy appeal has been run from a group of veterans who say the Royal British Legions turned it into a drumroll of support for current wars. Well, the Royal British Legion's Director of Fundraising and National Events, Russell Thompson, is on the line now. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Russell. The the veteran's letter says the appeal was launched with, with showbiz hype and ignored the true horror of war. What's your reaction to that? Well, I, th- I think obviously we, we, would, we would never want to ignore the true horror of war. But just let me take you back about 13 years. Um, the income then from the poppy peel was around about £15 million. And, uh, and we invited the Spice Girls to launch the appeal then. Um, and uh, over the years since then, we've used various pop groups. Um, we, we have uh, used Dame Vera Lynn, uh, who I guess at one stage probably was a Spice Girl herself. Um, we've also used the, the families of victims. And two years ago, we went out to Basra to launch the appeal. So really, uh, to bring the appeal up to its current level of, of, of £35 million, that's how much we, we raised last year. I think it's been important to, to, to use pop stars, to use well-known individuals so that uh, we can draw attention to it and raise much-needed money for the work of the Legion. We spend about £200,000 a day. That's £1.4 million a week. And we depend on the income from the poppy appeal. So it is really important, I think, to keep that very much uh, in the public vogue. How important, Russell, and indeed how possible is it for an organisation so involved with veterans to be impartial on the rights and wrongs of war? Well, I mean, basically, uh, we, 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 we see ourselves basically as the safety net. Uh, the Legion is here, uh, and anyone who is a victim of war or their families and they need help, um, they can come to the Legion. So basically, that, that's what, what's what we're here for. We really don't uh, have an opinion on war. Uh, we're here to, to, to support the, the victims and the veterans. Just quickly, Russell, another of the fundraising ideas was the single, the two-minute silence uh, single. He wanted to get it to number one 
on Sunday. Any idea how it's looking so far? Well, it's looking good at the moment. We're at number 19 at the moment. Uh, we're, we're absolutely uh, thrilled that we're at that number. Um, and if we get into the top 10 at the weekend, that would be great. Unfortunately, well, uh, perhaps they're, they're, it's going to be good for some people, but Take That are, are launching as well at the weekend, and they may just pip us at the post. I'm not sure, but it's certainly fingers crossed from here. Uh, but to get into the top 10 for the first time uh, that we have uh, put forward um, a, a video, we're absolutely thrilled at that. Russell Thompson, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, Christopher, just quickly before we go, let's let's round up a couple of other issues uh, in the news this week. Of course, the deadline for the paperwork to be signed in Iraq to keep mm. British troops there has passed. What's the situation now? What's going to happen? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, today, uh, Iraq, has, after eight months, is starting to get a government. It's going to get a president. It's going to get uh, a prime minister and a chairman of international strategy. The British are on their way out. Um, they're doing training down in the south. The Iraqis that I talked to in Baghdad say, we don't mind if the British go. We want to keep the Americans here, and that's particularly important. By the way, the two-minute silence for the Poppy Day, why didn't they give it to Stephen Fry to do? That would have pleased so many people. And <laughs> Just very quickly, the G20 summits uh, coming up. What should we look out for? Just the headlines. Uh, money. And also, this is the summit we'll remember as showing that America is losing its power as a superpower apart from its nuclear capability. Uh, President Obama is presiding over the death of America as a superpower. Uh, David Cameron's been talking today about how we need to keep world uh, trade-ups, stop protectionism. He's going to have a massive role to play in the the G20 and asserting himself there too. Well, he wants a massive role. He won't get it. Uh, The big thing is America is actually devaluing the dollar, so it makes their their, their goods cheaper to buy. The Chinese won't uh, uh, revalue their their yuan, their, their currency, to make their... Uh, their, their goods more expensive to buy. And there is the battlefield. The battlefield is in the Far East and the two winners in Asia at the moment, India and China. Uh, and just quickly, Christopher, the big question, will you be downloading the two-minute silence or take that single? Uh, no, I will download the two-minute silence and I will paste over the top of it. This was recorded by Stephen Fry. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's that's it for this week. Uh, my uh, thanks to uh, Christopher Lee. If you've got any thoughts on the topics we've covered this week, get in touch. Our email address, as ever, is uh, sitrep at bfbs.com. And at our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep, you can uh, sign up for our weekly podcast. So you never need to miss a programme. Uh, until next time, uh, it's been me, Matt Teal, uh, sitting in for Kate this week. Thank you very much for listening and uh, goodbye for now. This is Zip Rap on BFBS.